Hello, and welcome to this special episode. Much like the podcast we did with past storyteller William Rhodes last week, we wanted to touch base with Chloe Jackman, whom we featured in our season two finale, to see how she's doing during the current uprising for racial justice. In case you missed it, please go back and listen to that podcast we did with Chloe in November 2019. Here's Chloe. How was race looked at or viewed or talked about within your family? Let's start Let's start there. It's actually funny. I was telling somebody earlier today. Uh, so my mom's family is from Southern Washington. And, um, you know, my dad was uh, born in Oklahoma and came out here as a child and moved down to like Salinas, uh, Monterey area and was raised down there. Um, and, you know, I just, I was just asking my mom the other day when they got married and she said it was, they met in 70 and got married in 73, which was literally only six years. I'm getting the math right on that after interracial marriage was deemed legal, you know? Um, but I think that my parents were both raised very differently, but also I think that race was something that was kind of hard for them to navigate in the sense that I don't know if my dad knew how to talk about being black and talk about some of the like, um, like the trauma that he had around it. I think he probably was just more angry about it and not really able to like sit down and have, um, deep conversations about that trauma and about that like life experience and about the way that he, you know, owning a business as a black man, you know, people were always like, this is yours. You know what I mean? Like he had trauma around it. Right. But that generation, you know, that wasn't therapy. <laughs> you know, We're like the therapy kids in this generation, but our parents' generation, like therapy wasn't a thing that you, you really, you really did. Um, and marrying, you know, a white woman, I think that there was probably some weird trauma in there that he never fully dealt with. And, you know, my mom came from a small town in Washington and not that I think she, I don't think she ever thought twice about it. And when he went up to meet the family, um, I don't think that anybody really, we actually talked about this a couple years ago, you know, they were all kind of like, Oh, you're black, but not like, Oh, you're black. Um, I can remember being, I don't know, like 10 or 11 years old. My mom would always come up and stay for a little while. And we were driving around and I said something like, it's weird. Sometimes people stare at me. Like, I remember having this moment of understanding that I was black and that my cousins were white. And she, she, I remember her saying to me, well, it's, you know, because you look different from everybody else. Like you are, you are black. And I, you know, I can remember being younger and like, I remember I bought this, this t-shirt and it said like, black is beautiful. I actually still have it. And she's like, do you know, like we would have conversations about what it meant to be black. But I also think my father was not fully invested in those conversations with me. So it was kind of left to my mom to teach me how to be black, but she also hadn't had enough conversation with my dad about it. And so we were both kind of navigating this journey, you know, together. And she said, yeah, it's because you are black. And it was like, it was the first time I realized that I was 
different from my family. And it's, it's, um, it's one of, and so the person I was talking to earlier, she's like, it's so crazy, right? Because race is literally a social construct. Like we all look different, but like it's so socially constructed to, to separate and keep us apart and keep certain people down and keep other people up and just like create this like madness and this structure of control um, because I didn't see it. And then I remember watching this movie, um, Losing Isaiah. It was like Halle Berry and something. And it was about a little boy who was born to a crack mother who was Halle Berry and was put up in the hospital and, and a white, the white doctor adopted the baby. And they had him until he was like three years old. And Halle Berry came back and wanted him. And it was this whole thing where the judge was like, you're white, you can never raise him. Like, you don't know what being black. Like, this whole thing went down. And Halle Berry finally got him back. But at one point, the older sister, who was the doctor's older sister, so it was a white, a white girl, was giving him a bath. And his hand was on her hand. And she goes, Isaiah, do you see the difference in our hands? And he goes, yeah, mine's smaller. And it's like, it's those moments, right, of like, how soon do I have to talk to my kid about race? I'm talking with my girlfriends. You know, one of my girlfriends has two beautiful little black boys and they're going to have to, they are already having the conversations. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and at one point do cute little black boys turn into threatening black men that, you know, you have to hide from when you walk down the street and avoid and call the cops on for fucking bird watching. Like, when does that happen? Like, when does it go from like, oh my God, of course I'll pay some money to like save that starving child in Africa, but you'll fucking call the cops on him when he's 16 and grow some muscles. So I don't know, like, it's an interesting, it's For interesting. The list. And then I went to like a very white elementary school and a, and a much more diverse middle school and a very black high school and then a very white college. And that sent me like, swirling in both directions like it was like a fucking washing machine with each <laughs> with each different transition because it was so confusing to navigate and looking back I realized it was confusing for everybody it wasn't right. like people were mean to me because they knew better or knew more they were just as confused about who they were and where their place was in the world as I am I would say in my younger years, it was, I had a fairly diverse group of friends like that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there was a lot of black kids at my elementary school, but it was also a fairly diverse school. And I never really felt any weird prejudice then. And it was, you know, I will say that I think a lot more of the prejudice that I felt was being mixed and getting and feeling prejudiced from the black community was probably more commonly what I experienced growing up. Not feeling like I had a place, you know, because I was raised by a white mother and, and I think the way looking back at it now, what I realize is the overt and in my face prejudice and struggles that I had were with black people. It was the less obvious things that I didn't really understand until I got older that happened from white people. And sometimes in a way that I'm like, not even sure that I, that they even stand out to me in a way that I really fully remember. It's more of just like, this is a feeling that I have from this time in my life feeling like 
um, feeling very just lost as a biracial person because it just wasn't as common, I guess, in my generation. Like, you know, kids now are all kinds of everything. But if you, if you do the math back, you know, interracial marriage wasn't legal until almost 1970. So that kind of means that it took another generation for it to really become a thing that was more common, right? So like right. mixed kids weren't quite as common when I was growing up. And so I just, I really, I, I struggled and suffered a lot at the hands of not being black enough through high school. Okay. I mean, towards the end of high school, it definitely got better. And I, you know, I confronted a lot of people towards the end of high school but in the, in the first few years people really were just like what is wrong with you like you walk so white and you talk so white and you act so white and then I was in drama because those were the only kids who accepted me <laughs> for who I was which didn't help with the whiteness <laughs> <laughs> I was in band and drama it was like oh, okay yep <laughs> yeah, maybe they got a point here <laughs> yeah <laughs> well not that whole whiteness thing yeah you're right I am pretty white <laughs> And then I always liked dating white boys. And I, I wonder now looking back if, if there were ever people who didn't like me back for the reason that I'm black. Do you know what I mean? Like there's mm -hmm. all these things that you can't like fully get into somebody's head and understand mm -hmm. and know. Um, because you just can't get in people's heads and understand that, you know? But so that was a lot of my prejudice. And then I got to college and I was very confused because it was so white and the few black people who were there were so tight knit. You had to like earn your way into that collection of people. Like that, that group, there was not really any room, you know, for for me there either and then you people went, like well, you can join a sorority and i'm like so i'm gonna join the all-white sorority i'm gonna join the all-black sorority like where's this where's the space that i get to exist in the like multicultural sorority like <laughs> where's that one because i certainly don't i fit in with a karen's um but i also don't necessarily feel like i fit in with this place either do you know what i mean so there's this whole like the whole mixed race thing was was such um such a challenging journey and then you know dating white men i got a lot of flack from black people for that you like know high I mean? school all over again in a way yes and like on the streets of san francisco like you know me and my ex-boyfriend had a beer can thrown at us because we we're walking down the street together i had black men come up to me and you know basically ignore the fact that i'm holding my boyfriend's hand and start hitting on me because they were like well obviously you don't want to be with him you want to be with me so there was this whole crazy dynamic and struggle that I had within my own community is that something that's still with you have you have you moved past that have you I did a lot of like soul searching with that and I wrote like sociology papers on it and and you know took my black history classes and and really tried to understand it and I, no, I still think that I suffer from some trauma from that for sure. But um, I also think that what's happening now is unifying in a different way. Um, it's kind of putting all of that 
a way for, I think, all of us. You know what I mean? Like, that is not what is important right now. Like, <laughs> who cares who I'm dating? Who cares how I talk? Like, that's not the fucking point right now. The point is, how are we as a people, as a community, as a country, as a globe, going to elevate people who are of African heritage? Like, how are we going to do that? How do we do that? that? That's the priority right now. And that's how we need to move forward. What is inspiring you? And where are you drawing your strength from throughout this uprising? Um, <laughs> strength, uh, wine. Um, Got it. <laughs> For some reason, I was like, I was like Bartles and James. No, <laughs> whiskey. That's definitely helping. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the ways that I am, what I'm getting inspiration from, is is the passion and the continued passion and this like this movement that has just it's caught fire do you know what i mean like it has it is it is a fucking fire just taking it's and it's still going and that's the thing like i keep waiting to go back on social media and have it go back to like oh my god i'm on vacation and it's so much fun and blah 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 like it, people are passionate about this and what's interesting too is you know i was at one of the protests and i was like there's so many people other than black people out of these protests, mm -hmm. which has been really wild to me um, to see so much of that and to feel like I don't have to be at all of them. You know, like people are like, I'm going to go to this one. Are you going to be there? And I'm like, no, I'm tired. They're like, no problem. I'll be there for you. And I'm like, great. You know, I was telling somebody yesterday, I was like, maybe I should get my head on a stick, you know, like, like a, like a ping pong board or something and just put my head, head on it and people can just take that. And then there's my, there's my representation. The amount of people who are reaching out and the openness and willingness for people to want to hear what this is like. Do you know what I mean? But the fact that people are like, wow, I didn't realize my privilege. And I've had a lot of friends, a lot. I've had a lot of messages recently. Um, a lot of people reaching out through all the different channels, just like Chloe, you know, I just want you to know that I love you and I support you and I support this movement and I want to do whatever I can. And I'm not asking for anything in return. Like, I just want you to know that I'm here and I support this. I mean, it's been kind of, in, it's been kind of wild, the amount of people who are reaching out um, to say that they like see this movement and they hear what's going on and they're always wanting to learn more. People ask how you're doing, right? And they don't actually want to know. People don't want to hear about the fucking racist shit that happens all the goddamn time. They don't want to hear about the, you know, the ways that I feel prejudiced or looked over or passed over or followed um, or, or people walking by and clutching their purse or won't fucking look me in the eye when they're walking down the street. Like, nobody wants to hear about that shit. Just like when they ask how you're doing. They just want you to say good and move on. I want to believe that, like, this would be as passionate if we weren't in the middle of this quarantine life, but I actually don't believe. I think that it would have caught fire and then died off again. And I, the, the interesting thing about that is that it's bringing people out. Yeah. Into the streets in numbers, streets. in numbers we've never seen. And like you're saying, like the duration, it's still go. It's like full flame. Yeah, it is. So. It, I mean, for the first like 10 days that this whole thing went down, like I wasn't, I hadn't cried. I hadn't done anything. And then I drove past two doctors as I turned on to fell from 
whatever street that is. And there was just two doctors at nine o'clock in the morning with a Black Lives Matter standing like this in an intersection. And I don't know how long they had been there. I don't know how long they were going to be there. But these two people got up, got dressed, made their sign and went out and stood on this street corner by themselves to stand up for this thing. And that just sent me, like, it just sent me over the edge <laughs> in this way that it was like, this is it. Like, we have to, this is, this is the point. Like, don't fucking stop. Keep being out there. We are tired. Keep being out there. Like, thank you. And don't stop. <laughs> the passion that people have behind this is, is crazy. And the awakening, it, there's part of it that's slightly infuriating. It's kind of like, what, did you think that we were fucking making this up this whole time? <laughs> did you think that, that when we talk about Black Lives Matter and that race is still a thing and we are being oppressed and racism and da 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 like we were just saying that because we wanted to hear ourselves speak? Like, mm -hmm. no, this has been going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for being here. And also understand that we don't necessarily know how to suddenly be heard. Right. Like I've had conversations people were like, well, this one person was really um, kind of aggressive and like not appreciating that we were out there and there was like not that many black people, but we were out there. And I'm like, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know how, we don't know how to suddenly be supported. Mm -hmm. We don't have all the answers to all of this. Like we need the allowances to feel all the feelings and not to be told how to feel our feelings and not to be told how to react and respond because we don't, we are not used to being heard or seen or understood in any capacity. Yeah. But one of my girlfriends, uh, when that poor man was arrested for dancing on the fucking street in Alameda and I reposted the girlfriend messaged me and she was like, I'm fucking furious at those white people who were sitting in their apartments saying, oh my God, leave him alone. She's like, they need to be putting their fucking white bodies between him and those cops. That's what white people need to be doing right now is putting themselves in the way of what is happening because our bodies are, are not valued enough to be put in the way of anything because we're just, you know, like trash to be thrown to the side, to be shot in the back, to be hung from a fucking tree, to be shot on a Sunday afternoon while jogging. Like that's what the value of our lives are. So put a valuable thing in between and see if that makes a difference. Um, mm. But yeah, this is, this, is, this is a lot and this is, this is heavy and I keep wondering why I'm like so upset and so tired and so emotional and I'm like, I should be happy because things are moving, but it's a lot of trauma at the same time too, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of trauma coming to the surface and finally being acknowledged and heard and having so many people reaching out which is so beautiful, but also so draining. And people want to talk to me and, and they want to find out how they can help and do more. And I want to be that resource as much as I can, but it's also exhausting to, to be the black face for people. Right. I am one of the only black friends, I would say for a large number of my friends. Right. So to like hold that, space for them is not always easy. When you do step out of the house to go to actions, go to protests, what have you, um, do you, how do you kind of, um, cause I, I, I'm guessing you always go out with your camera. Yes. So how much are you, is it, is it difficult to be like, I'm here to document, but also to participate? Yes. Um, and I find 
that I observe a lot more than I do participate at this point. When um, I think the, the Golden Gate Bridge protest, I, that was like the fourth one in a week. And a lot of people were like, are you going, are you going? And I was like, I don't have any more energy left in me. Like I've cried it all out. Like I'm just kind of done. Like I, I'm, I've reached capacity. So I was like, but I'm gonna walk to the, the part of the bridge that I can see down um, the bridge. I can get some shots of everybody on the bridge. And so we walked over there and then Mike was like, well, do you wanna just go to the other side and see what we can see? And I was like, yeah, I guess let's try it. And so we did and we went around and you know, cars were driving by and honking and there was all these people on the side and it just like tears started streaming down my face. Like I couldn't even deal with like how powerful it was to see all these people out there. And then the timing actually worked out amazing because I was there as they blocked off, they stopped the traffic from both directions. And then everybody started coming back down um, in the middle of the bridge, which is funny because five minutes earlier, I was like, God, it'd be so cool to stand in the middle of Golden Gate Bridge. Well, and I jumped. So a white girl jumped the border, the, the barrier, and the cops were like, get back. And so she came back. And then she went and did it again. And then she went all the way across. And I was like, well, cool. She did it first. So now uh, I'm going to let a few other people go. And then I'll see if I can go. <laughs> Which I did. And then as I walked across the barrier to the southbound side, this wall of people was coming towards me. And I was standing where the cops were that were trying to keep them, I guess, from walking all the way through. And these people just came and they surrounded the cops, but it felt more like me. And they kneeled and they just kept piling in and piling in and piling in. Mm. And they got on one knee and they put an arm up and they were chanting and they were holding their signs. And it was one of the most powerful things that I have ever seen in my entire life. I was... I couldn't even breathe. I was crying so hard. And these people were, and then on the other side of the bridge, they were all piled up as far as you could see. Like there was just people everywhere just shouting and, and, and chanting and protesting. And they weren't getting up so that they could be on their phones and they could take pictures. They stayed where they were so that they could fucking be impactful. Like that was the point. They were being the, the large crowd. And I took a few pictures that day, but honestly, I couldn't even see through the back of my lens because I was just crying too hard and I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. I no longer wanted to take the pictures because I just needed to be in that moment feeling that power and that, right. that, that movement and that fire and that they weren't going to stop. Right. You know, like that was a moment when I was like, that was, that felt very much like this is different. And you can take that with you. Yes, yes, and I did take that with me. And everyone. And I mean, I was like shaking. I'm like kind of shaking right now, thinking about it again. Like it was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced in my life. And, and these people were, they were, their voices were hoarse. They had been yelling for so long. Right. It was beautiful. It was fucking beautiful. Are you hopeful? And if so, what, what do you hope, I guess, happens, let's say in the next six months, in the next year, in the next five years? I don't know. I mean, I guess a prerequisite would be, is this different? And I think we've- I think this is different. Yeah. I think this is different because so many people are having these conversations that they've never had before. You know, what was interesting about that day with the bridge 
and, and that whole weekend. And, you know, if you're into astrology at all, which I am a woo woo and I like all that kind of shit, there's some serious energy happening in our universe right now, like astrologically speaking. Um, and that weekend it was a new moon or a full moon, something happened. And it was like a very transformative, powerful weekend when that happened. And then within my own family, conversations were happening you know with people that were very hard and they're still not resolved fully but people are talking about this who wouldn't normally be talking about this right like people who have police officers in their family these conversations need to happen mm-hmm. we need to talk about this where do you guys land on this i'm sorry you're a cop that's a hard fucking job that you chose but that's your job but that doesn't mean that i believe that all cops are bad black lives matter does not mean all cops are bad Black Lives Matter does not mean white people are bad. Black Lives Matter does not mean white people's lives don't matter. Black Lives Matter means black lives fucking matter. If you are a cop and you think that it's okay in the good old boys club to to not speak up when your fucking brother and doing whatever the fuck they're doing, then that is a problem. And that is a deep, deep problem. So what I think I see differently now is that people are having the conversations. And every time I post a video about having these conversations, so many people comment, I had a conversation this weekend with somebody that I wouldn't have normally talked to about this. And I thought it was going to get really heated, but I think they understood what I was saying. Or I did this, like, it's this micro shift that I think that is happening on this, this person to person level. That's what I think is bringing light to the far corners, the far reaching spots. You know what I mean? Like this is San Francisco. I feel pretty safe protesting here. I feel fairly safe as a black woman on the streets in San Francisco, but there are people who are protesting in places that are terrifying and, mm-hmm. and standing up in places that are terrifying and standing in the cops' faces in places where cops are known to be racist and hurtful and murder people. Right. So, but it's, it's the fact that people it's no longer the taboo conversation that you don't bring up at the dinner table. Racism is now the conversation that you do bring up at the dinner table and you're allowed, and I'm allowed to bring it up now. That's the other thing, right? Like before it would be like, Oh, well, you know, Chloe, it's, that's not a big deal. Or I don't think, I think you're looking into it too much, or I think you're reading into this too much. Fuck. No, I'm not. Do you want me to go find 10 people that I can, that can agree with my story and tell you that (laughs) I'm actually not making this up because I'm sure you can find them now because now we're allowed to talk about it. Politics, fine. We won't talk about the dinner table. Religion, we won't talk about the dinner table, but racism, we're going to fucking talk about at the table. Racism is a conversation that people are now having and that's important. And, you know, like I've been saying to not black people, don't cut off the race people in your family. Keep talking to them, keep educating them because this is how they're going to learn and grow. Racism is wrong. It is wrong. It's like, I get that people are like, but I don't want to talk to them anymore because they're racist. I get that. But the right thing has to win here. And I think the right thing is going to win here. And I think that the, the police system, I don't know how it needs to get fixed. I know that it, it probably just needs to be taken apart again. I think realistically, you know, you got to get the, the good old boys out. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I'm not a politician. But I do believe that the way the system is working is not correct because police officers who are trying to do the right thing are being shunned or transferred or, you know, beaten to submission 
from standing up to the things that are wrong and those wrong things need to stop like that you cops get six months of training and they have our lives in their hands right doctors get 10 years of training and they have our lives in their hands there's, there's a disproportionate issue going on here. Mm-hmm. That's not correct. That is not right that you get six months of training to literally have people's lives in your hands. That's not okay. okay. So I feel like we, this has happened at the time that it was supposed to happen, right? 2020 is a transformative year. Um, we are learning more about ourselves as people, as individuals, as communities, as policies, politicians, like all of this is all coming to the surface and it's hard and it's no, no mountain worth climbing is easy to get to the top of. And so here we are, 2020 fucking sucks, (laughs) but 2020 is also epic. 2020 is important. Like this year is a year that is going to go down in history as the year that turned the corner on so many things. Please God, let this be the fucking year that turns the corner on all of these things that we need to have changed. No, I'm hopeful. And I have to be hopeful, Jeff. Like I got a baby and granted he is going to probably look fairly racially ambiguous his whole life, but I got a baby that I have brought into this world and I need to know that the world I'm leaving him is not as shitty as it's, it's slated to be (laughs) at least at the beginning of 2020 as shitty as the world was slated to be. I think that, I think that we're going to win and I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like, but I just, I think that we're going to win. And I think that my one request to anybody who is listening to this and anybody who takes a conversation back to their family or back to their fucking racist uncle or whatever, is to just keep being uncomfortable because we've been uncomfortable forever. I've been walking around in black skin, being seen, not in like, oh my God, I see you, sister, in a like, mm, I see you, there's that black girl over there. Right. I've been being seen my whole life. So I've been uncomfortable in my own skin in too many situations. It's okay for everybody else to be uncomfortable now for the next six months, for the next year, for the next five years while we figure this shit out. Keep being uncomfortable, keep pushing the people who need to be pushed and the people and the people who are fucking still voting for Trump and, and still going down that racist rabbit hole. I don't know. There's no hope for them. They all need to go shift off to a fucking Island or a planet somewhere far away and just go live with their non COVID existing lives. I'm going to leave this in. I don't think they're listening to this. I'm going to fuck they, they are. You just need to know y'all just need to go because yeah. I, I get that there's no hope for the people who are still standing behind that man. Like I just, right. that's a barrier that I don't, I mean, that barrier is better than his Mexican wall, which isn't fucking working. Like, that is a real barrier that I don't think we're going to get past. But the people who are like, well, I don't know. What about all lives matter? I'm confused why black people are so angry. Those are the people we can still get through to. Or but, but the looting. Yeah, but, but the looting. But, but, the but looting. we fucking built this goddamn country. We can burn it to the fucking ground if we want to. And I get it. I don't love the looting. I'm a, I have a business place, yep. you know what I mean? I have a, you know, I, I don't love, I don't think the looting is helping, but I understand that the rage and the, the anger and the frustration and the, the have nots, yo, like black people, when were we given the chance? We built half of the fucking, we, we, <laughs> we built the land that the white people own that they've been passing down for generations to keep their fucking families on the up and up while we, you know, don't have any. And that they stole from the people who lived here before them. Before that. Yeah. 
So there needs to be some kind of reparations too. And that's what my friend Rachel was saying. She's like, I think we need to stop calling it donating to Black Lives Matter and donating it to these movements. It's fucking paying reparations to these movements. It's the beginnings of a, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. not donation. You're not fucking, you're not, there's no white savior here. Like we don't need you to donate to us. We need you to pay back what you have earned through your generations of, of having more opportunity. And white people need to do the work yeah. on themselves. Yeah. And that's the thing too. A lot of people have been commenting like, Chloe, thank you for pointing that out. When I, I said, I did a video the other day and I said, I have a small thing that people could be doing to uh, help this process. And it starts by looking a fucking black person in the eye when you walk down the street. Mm -hmm. Smile, nod, how are you? Instead of clutching your fucking purse and crossing the street and acting like we're going to rob you. Because it happens to me. I live next to the, one of the bougiest neighborhoods in the city. And I walk around over there and I think people are like, what's she doing here? You know, mm -hmm. like that fucking Karen who called on that guy who was painting on his own fucking front steps. So, you know, there's so much, and but so many people were like, God, I need to look at that, Chloe. I need to understand that. I, you're right. I'm, I have not been good about that. Thank you for pointing that out to me. So I'm going to keep talking. Mm -hmm. I think people are going to keep listening. I hope that they still listen, mm -hmm. you know, but I also know that I surrounded myself with people who want to learn and grow. So how do we reach the people who don't, have a desire to learn and grow but that's the job because that's somebody's family member i mean everybody that i know i know probably has some random family member who needs to learn and grow so go call your racist aunt that was chloe jackman please join us monday for another special episode this one with our friend uncle damien Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is hosted and produced by me, Jeff Hunt. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and stay healthy.